Greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Melidoma Somme. Chapter 10, The Voyage Home. Since I had no way to get 500 francs, I had no choice but to keep going on foot. But that didn't seem so unpleasant, for in these circumstances, one does not think distance or speed when facing a journey. The focus is on the process. There are stories in my village about people walking all the way to the Ivory Coast or to Ghana during the first half of the century, when the French decided to use unpaid indigenous labor to construct railroads. As a young man, my father had participated in the construction of the railroad, the one that was designed to link the jungle to the desert, but never made it to the yellow sands of the Sahara. He had stories of interminable walks through the savannah and the jungle, going toward the ocean, by order of the colonial commandment. People were requisitioned by the village chief and packed into the administration warehouse before being sent northward on foot. The journey, which lasted about a month, was to remain in the memories of those who made it as the most physically demanding and mentally demoralizing experience of their lives. Almost all who were requisitioned were used as bearers. Those who were not loaded with goods were in charge of providing the impetus for this human locomotive so that it could proceed at an acceptable speed. Overseers had whips to lash the travelers and keep them walking fast and steady. Those who did not know how to put their thoughts elsewhere and endure succumbed on the road where their carcasses were abandoned to the vultures, hyenas, boars, and lions. Stories like this were common. They testified to the challenges of the new time the white man's time in the African realm. Mine was a different experience from that of the people who had preceded me. I did not have any baggage and was therefore lighter than the lightest. When I took to the bush, walking along the dirt highway going east, I had all the time in the world to waste. The landscape around me was beautiful because of its diversity. The succession of mountains and valleys added to the panoramic aspect of the place. There was a creek or a river in every valley I crossed. The unpolluted water was refreshing to drink. The abundance of fruit trees saved me from my fear of starvation. I had gotten used to living in the bush as a good deserter of God, but my spirit did not want to forget. It acted as a counterforce to my motion forward and produced in me the feeling of someone running away because he was too guilty to be forgiven. I could see with my mind's eye what would have happened had I decided to stay. The total character thrashing, the gossip, the whip, the isolation, and the unhealable wound to my soul. Things would never have been the same again. Were they the same presently? 
No one could live so many years in such a strict institution and leave it unhaunted. seminary following me, judging me, slowing me down, wanting me back, and accusing me of violating the physical integrity of one of its sacred members. Images rushed into my crowded consciousness with insistent clarity. The bearded face of Father Malloy appeared and looked down on me as he wondered how to save a soul as messed up as this. Then, Father Superior's stentorian voice invaded my ears within. He wanted me to take the punishment as a man, totally committed to the divine. He wanted me to submit as an example and be corrected in a way that would also set an example. I heard myself singing requiem songs in a weeping tone. It was a cacophony of arguments launched in every direction within my consciousness How was I able to keep going forward? I could not tell. My first night in the mountains, I slept well because I did not dream. But when I woke up, I regretted being awake because what visited my conscious mind was the unending problem with guilt. I felt sandwiched between worlds, going toward the one, my village, that had abandoned me, to the other, now haunting me as if a good confession would have set things straight. As I walked with the heaviest baggage of thoughts ever, I could hear the agonizing sounds of trucks trying to conquer the unforgiving dirt highway. My anxious ruminations ended when I arrived at a village at a crossroad. The new road went north to south, and I wondered if it was the same road that I had seen from the top of the mountain. There were people everywhere. I noticed a man at a gas station. Which road is this? I asked in French. The man stared at me, then said, We first greet people in this corner of the country before asking questions. The new era has not changed the rule yet. This was spoken patronizingly in passable French. The man was filthy. He seemed to be an extension of the oil and grease he sold. He was perspiring profusely, even though the weather wasn't that hot, probably because he was so fat. The shirt he wore had once been white. I apologized for being so informal and greeted him again politely in French. He pointed south, saying, This road goes very far. If you stay on it, it will take you into Ghana. The other direction west goes into Bobo, and if you stay on it, it will take you into Mali. The road that goes into Ghana ends down there into the real Bobo Road, the road that goes also to Ouagadougou. He pointed his finger northward. Then he asked sarcastically, Now, what do you want? I want to go to Dano, I said, assuming that his knowledge of roads included cities and towns. The man looked astonished or embarrassed, I couldn't tell which. You see this road, he said, pointing south. Take it, and go very far, then ask someone. I think that this Dano place must be a savage region, hidden from the light of history. 
I don't remember seeing it in any book. He returned to his work as if he wanted nothing else to do with me. I knew that my village was close to Ghana, so I resumed my voyage even though my mind could not stop asking how far is very far. The highway was heavily traveled. Every time a truck, a car, or a horse cart passed, it was followed by a thick cloud of red dust that stuck greedily to the body whether there was moisture on it or not. To avoid choking, I tried to stay as far away as possible from the highway, but I could never seem to get far enough. That, I soon learned, was because I was on the wrong side of it. The dust never blew to the other side. For three days and four nights, I encountered no village, only my thoughts and feelings mixed together in a fierce competition. I encountered birds, rabbits, monkeys, and antelope. Antelope were likely to be found in the middle of the afternoon at a waterhole. As we drank together, they looked at me with astonishment. When I walked away, they continued drinking as if they had established that I was not a hunter. Monkeys did not seem to be surprised by me at all. Some of them traveled alongside me, jumping from branch to branch and screaming to each other until they lost interest in me. Rabbits fled in silent disarray. As I walked closer and closer to my past, I was not feeling excitement. Rather, countless grim questions lashed out at me. What if everyone is dead? What if the house you seek never was? What do you think you're going to do anyway? On the fourth day of my journey along this road, I came to a town where most of the houses were made of mud. Somewhere farther ahead, I could see the tower of a church. This is how far I was supposed to walk before asking someone for Dano, I thought. I was told that the name of this town was Daiboku. Dieboku? Dano was under its jurisdiction and located 55 kilometers to the north. The man I spoke to did not seem interested in knowing anything about me, nor was he in the mood to talk. But, for the first time, someone had actually given me a firm location of the town where I was born. Fifty kilometers felt like a day's walk. My heart pounded in my chest. Did I feel this excitement because I was going home at last? Or was it because I was close to an ending? There was no definitive answer. The last part of my journey was almost twice the speed of the first part. I counted my steps ten at a time until I reached one hundred, then I started all over again until I lost the energy to do that. Farther east, I encountered another crossroad. This one was marked. There was a sign that said that Dano was north from where I was. I arrived at a marketplace where an immense crowd was bartering. I sat underneath a tree to catch my breath. The day was only two-thirds over, so I did not think I was running out of time. After all, wasn't I home? Nobody had confirmed it yet, but I thought I remembered the marketplace and the huge kapok trees lining the dirt road that went through it. A man came over to me and said something that I did not understand. I tried to respond, but I had forgotten which language I was speaking in. What came out of my mouth was gibberish. I was exhausted, so I closed my eyes and slept, but not for long. 
When I woke up, there was a crowd around me. Everybody was talking at the same time in a language I did not understand. A man addressed me in French. He asked if I was a stranger here. The sound of French in the middle of so much gibberish was invigorating. I heard myself say to him, Oh, you speak French? Of course I do. That's because I'm not from here. Where are you from? His French was perfect. I told him my story in a nutshell. If the house of Bakai is in Danobagan, then it's across the river from here. That's what Danobagan means. It should not be difficult to find it unless everybody is dead. Here, everybody knows everybody else. But just don't try to find someone by using his last name. Almost everybody has the same last name. Look, I'll walk you there if you want. I got on my feet and looked at the man. He was slender, a little taller than me, but not older. He was dressed in an oversized shirt and in pants that ended in black leather shoes covered by a thin layer of yellow dust. He looked much cleaner than me in my dust-reddened uniform and filthy sneakers. His narrow eyes were almost hidden behind white glasses and his hair was bushy. Stretching out his hand, he said, My name is Owe Draoko La Mosa. You are? Malidoma, I mean Patrice, Patrice Ome. It's been so long since I last was here that I can barely remember where my parents live, but I'm sure I can tell my way from the river. We cut through the crowd and took to the road, heading east again. The sight of the mud houses along the road brought back memories. I recognized the chief's headquarters, built like a fortress with its guarded entrances. I also noticed the minaret, crowned at its top with three ostrich eggs, the tallest mud building in town. Mr. Oeg Draogo drew me out of my inspection by asking me how long I had been away. Oh, about fifteen years, I said almost without interest. Oh, so you're one of those who were chosen by God, he snorted. <laughs> Independence has put an end to all that crap. But your parents must have forgotten you by now. Fifteen years leaves plenty of time to die. Where did you go to school? I did not like talking about death. In the city, there were fewer schools in colonial times than now, but the same is true for opportunities. Why are you coming home? You should have gone right to the city. With your education, you would have found a job. That's what I would have done before coming home for a visit. There's nothing here. You can't expect to like something you never grew up with. I know. I don't know why I came home. It's complicated. I did not know how to respond. He had no idea that jobs and earning a livelihood were now realities for me, were new realities for me. Before he had spoken to me, I had no ambition other than to get home. He had touched upon grave matters. 
Interrupting my thoughts, he said, Look, if you get tired of this, please look me up in the city. Uagudago is great. With your education, you will find something you like. We had crossed the river Watazin and entered Danobagan. Dano across the river. It was the same as I remembered it. Less some minor changes, such as trees being cut down here and there. One of the missing trees was the one under which my mother had given birth to me. The road through the village wound from creek to creek as it made its way to my parents' house. After hesitating at a couple of turns, we finally found it. Mr. Uwe Draogo did not want to continue to the house. He said he did not like emotional scenes. I sat on a pile of boards under a neem tree, the only shade tree near the house. The home I had left a decade and a half ago faced me silently. in sight. Some chickens hunted for food in the nearby cornfield. Fifteen years of absence had changed my perception of earth homes. The compound did not have the same majesty. It did not look tall and imposing and its simplicity was almost synonymous with desolation. Unconsciously, I was looking at it with eyes that had been changed. Minor additions and modifications had been made. I noticed that the main entrance led directly into the inner yard, whereas 15 years ago, it had led first through the poultry room, then through the zangala, and then into the yard. I wanted to go inside to take a closer look, but something prevented me. The sun had nearly set, and I knew someone was going to come home sooner or later, so I decided to take a nap. When I woke up, the sun had disappeared. There were half a dozen naked people around me, all speaking Dagara, which I could no longer comprehend. They seemed excited by the fact that I had woken up. They were mostly kids and were extremely dirty. I was as interested in them as they were in me. We could only look at each other. It was not long before a young woman carrying wood appeared from behind the house. She dropped her load near the main entrance and spoke to the children. They responded by pointing at me. She greeted me in French. I asked, Is this the house of Bakai? No, this is Elie, my father's house. Bakai is my grandfather. Her French was miserable, but it was better than the gibberish of the children. I said nothing. She walked inside the compound and came out with a calabash full of white liquid. She drank a small portion of it and handed the rest to me. I brought it to my mouth. It tasted sour, but it was drinkable. She took the rest and walked back into the compound. An old man arrived on a bicycle. He was thin, small, and fragile looking. He parked his bicycle against the wall and greeted me in Dagara. I responded in French. He spoke to the kids around me, looked at me for a while, as if he were trying to identify who I was, and then disappeared through the entrance of the compound. Shortly afterward, an older woman arrived, 
Like the young woman, she had a load of dry wood on her head. She spoke to the kids as she came into sight of us. They, in turn, said something that made her look at me intensely. I wondered why she was staring at me so hard, and I felt ill at ease. As if she was struggling with some decision, she walked forward and backward, continually turning her head toward the river and back to me. I lowered my eyes, picked up a piece of wood, and began moving dirt around. Suddenly, the woman screamed, Malidoma! Patere! Malidoma! She released her grip on her load of dry wood and tilted her head, sending the wood crashing to the ground. Then she rushed toward me. She knelt in front of me, grabbed my hands, and began wailing as if someone had just died. At first, I was embarrassed and turned my face away. Her emotion was so sincere that the tears were rushing out of her eyes like water from a spring. I realized that emotion begets emotion, for I too could not restrain the tears that were welling from my eyes. They blurred the image of my mother as they rushed out, and we wept together. I, silently, her making the sounds of someone in great pain. The noise soon attracted more and more people. The old man reappeared from inside the compound, followed by the young woman who had brought the refreshment. My mother called my name again and cried more than ever. I noticed that the young woman who was also in tears, but the old man was not. I read embarrassment in his face. He looked stunned disoriented and distressed. My sister ran over to us, cut through the ever-increasing crowd and joined my mother and me. She made loud cries and her plump body swung to and fro as she ran her hands up and down my body. My mood turned to embarrassment. My tears dried up and I wiped my eyes with the back of my hand. The woman, the women, cried much longer they seemed unwilling to put an end to the electric impulse that had taken hold of them when they recognized me. I noticed that my father had disappeared into the inner yard again and returned with some ash in his left hand. He walked into the sacred room where he remained for some time. When he reappeared, mother almost forced me to my feet. She pointed a finger at father. He stood still while she spoke to him in Dagara. When she was finished, Father said something and walked into the compound. Mother motioned me toward the entrance of the compound. She was holding on to me as if I were a sick person who could not walk, and I gave in to her fancy. My sister held me from the opposite side. Thus, sandwiched between women, I entered the house the Jesuit priest had taken me away from some fifteen years ago. I was followed by a crowd eager to drink in every moment of my homecoming. They seated me on a three-legged wooden stool placed against the wall next to an entrance. The sun had set. Darkness was rapidly enveloping the compound. I suddenly realized that where I was sitting used to be my grandfather's room, but it was no longer there. Outside the door, I could see some of the other buildings in the compound. To my right, there was a large kitchen with a fire burning in a big fireplace. On top of the fire was a large clay pot. Farther right and facing south, I could see the door to the Zangala. 
the same women's quarter I remembered from my childhood. This was the first thing I noticed that had not changed since I left. The other thing that had not changed was my father's quarter, situated south. Its entrance looked directly toward the Zangala. It was the only entrance in the whole compound that had a wooden door. It was pitch dark now, and I was sleepy. My sister politely asked me to take a bath. I remembered it had been nearly 11 days since my last one in the seminary on the morning of my ill-fated eviction. In the washroom, the bath water was pre-warmed in a large clay pot. There was a local liquid soap made from a mixture of boiled shea butter and potassium. I remember the process from when I was a child. My mother made soap for her family every fifth day of the week. My bath was refreshing and invigorating and it woke me up from my drowsiness. Afterward, mother gave me a piece of cloth to cover my body with and took away my filthy clothes and sneakers. That night, I tasted millet cake once again, the everyday food of the Dagara. As I lay down to sleep on the straw mat spread on a dirt platform, I noticed that this was the same place where 15 years ago, Grandfather had lain, telling me things about my future. And where is he now, I wondered.